It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Pastor Rick is continuing in his series on experiencing Jesus. This is part two today in a sermon that he's entitled, A Subway Musician. Turn to Mark chapter 1, we're in verses 9 through 13 today. Let's join Rick in his sermon. Here's Rick. It was a Friday. It was January the 12th. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning, several years ago, when a young white male wearing blue jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and wearing a Washington Nationals baseball cap, took out his violin and began playing in a subway stop along the metro in Washington, D.C. His case, his violin case, was shrewdly opened in front of him where he had seated it with some dollar bills and a few coins. <laughs> so over the next 45 minutes, this, this, this gentleman played during rush hour. And during those 45 minutes, over a, over a thousand people passed by while he played through six classical pieces. And it was a setting that numerous, you've probably seen them yourselves, numerous street artists, especially those with instruments or musical capabilities, would use uh, in order to appeal to the general public walking by that they might part with some of their cash in order to help their needy situation. <laughs> but what nobody knew was that this fiddler standing next to the wall and next to a garbage can was one of the finest classical musicians in the world. He was playing some of the finest music that had ever been written, and he was playing it on one of the most valuable instruments known to man. This was Joshua Bell, an international virtuoso with the, with the, with the violin. In fact, just three days before playing in the subway, he was in Boston and packed out Boston Symphony Hall where tickets were going over $100 a seat. So you might ask, what in the world is he doing in a subway? <laughs> well, this was staged by a newspaper, by the Washington Post, who staged it as an experiment, and they wrote later these words. They said, this was an experiment in context, perception, and priorities as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste in a dull setting at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Bell played for about 45 minutes, as I mentioned. 1,097 people passed by. Evidently, the, the paper counted. The result? Only six individuals stopped to listen or even paused long enough to listen to what he was playing. Six. Do you realize that that's the very same challenge we face? Jesus was born and he lived in a dusty, unimportant corner of the Roman Empire. Palestine, is, even today, is half a world away from us. What he said and what he did occurred almost 2,000 years ago. For many of us, that may seem like ancient history. And so how easy it would be for anybody just to walk on by and not pay any attention. 
I mean, how easy it would be because of our agendas, because of our dramas, because of our decisions, because of our pain, to, and in our rush, because we've got somewhere to be and we've got stuff we've got to do to really not give much attention to Jesus Christ. And that's why Mike, Mark, not Mike, Mark took pen to paper for us. He has written for us an account of the life of Jesus so that we might experience Him. He wants everything that Jesus said that He writes about, everything that Jesus did that He writes about, (coughs) to transcend 2,000 years and come into the now and literally change our lives. He's going to call it good news. In fact, He's already called it that. He's going to call it that next week and we're going to explore exactly what all that means next Sunday. But I find it fascinating that Mark doesn't assume that any of us are on board. Mark does not take it for granted that we are convinced about anything about this Jesus. And so that's why he believes, Mark does, that a personal examination of the life of Jesus Christ is enough to convince people. And so he begins his story, as we saw last Sunday, by pointing out that the arrival of Jesus was planned by God long before it ever happened. In fact, hundreds of years before it was even, it even happened, it was announced that it was going to happen by the prophets of God. And part of the plan, though, included sending a man ahead of time to get people ready, to get them prepared, so they wouldn't miss what God was up to. Now, like Joshua Bell, our subway musician... The identity of Jesus was also veiled. But it wasn't a complete incognita. Close, but not complete. And so what Mark does, in fact, let me open and encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 9 down to verse 13. What he does is he points out that there were two initial events in the life of Jesus that reveal that, first of all, Jesus came to be identified by us. Now, before our age of app games like Candy Crush or Angry Birds or Ninja, or Fruit Ninja, it doesn't matter what you've got on your phone or your iPad, there was, long before all that, manual dexterity needed to, and the mental challenge of putting jigsaw pieces together. Some of you may still do it. Put the physical pieces together in the right way and you're going to see the big picture. This is what Mark is after. So in chapter 1, verse 9 down to verse 13, Mark's going to put five puzzle pieces into our hands and it will begin the process. It's not going to complete it. It's going to take us a while to complete it. But it's going to begin the process of bringing clarity to who is this Jesus that, that we talk about so easily. What's the first puzzle piece? Well, look at verse 9. The identity of Jesus is connected to John the Baptist. Mark writes, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, Why is this the first thing that Mark records that Jesus did? What is significant about this Jesus coming out of his remote uh, hillside village of Nazareth, and coming down to the Jordan River where John is baptizing. 
Well, remember what we saw last week? Verse 1 through verse 8 of, of this chapter? Mark is establishing that there is a link between the prophecies about what John the Baptist was going to do and Jesus. He wants it to be crystal clear in all of our minds and all of our thinking that in God's plan, John was the coming forerunning messenger for Jesus. He doesn't want that linkage to ever be in doubt. But for that linkage to be there, John the Baptist has got to be able to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus had to come to where John was for that identification to take place. This is told to us in more detail in John chapter 1. So hold your finger here in Mark. Turn to the right past Luke to the next gospel of of John. Chapter 1 Look at verse 29. Look at how John himself explains this is exactly what needed to happen. So in chapter 1 of John, uh, we've got John the Baptist um, already baptizing people. He's already declaring the message, get ready, get prepared. This guy is coming soon. Now verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So even John the Baptist knew he was going to have to identify him one day. It was made clear, this is the one I'm talking about that you need to be ready and prepared to identify. There's the first puzzle piece Mark gives us. The identity of Jesus is seen in what John the Baptist said about him. Now look at the second puzzle piece. Verse 10. Back to Mark 1. And when Jesus came up out of the water, having been baptized, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What's that second puzzle piece? The anointing by the Spirit of God. Notice that phrase, the heavens were torn open. Fascinating. That is a phrase used by Old Testament authors when they want to describe and picture those times when God comes out of heaven, down to earth, to act on behalf of his people. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 18, verse 9. God parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. Another one, Psalm 145, verse 5. Part your heavens, Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. What came out of heaven? Well, the Spirit of God, we're told here in verse 10, descended on Jesus like a dove. So we've got this supernatural act where God anoints Jesus with the Spirit for his ministry here on earth. Now, remember how this connects back to one of the titles of Jesus that we saw last Sunday in verse 1. Jesus is called the Christ. Remember how we mentioned that term, the Christ, means the anointed one? That's why Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, 
when he's reading from Isaiah the prophet about himself, reads this statement, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And then he reads on a little bit further, and then Jesus ends by saying, and today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Or how about what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 37. He says, you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Mark is trying to make it really clear. Jesus is identified by what John the Baptist said about him in the ministry of preparation. His identity is also seen in this anointing by the Spirit of God. What's the third puzzle piece that goes into our hand? Well, verse 11. It's the affirmation by the Father. So the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. We don't know what the torn open heavens looked like. But we are told that a voice came and made an astonishing proclamation. Heaven expressly approves of Jesus. Now, who spoke? Well, look at the text. If Jesus is being identified as my son, then that means it's God the Father who is speaking. So if Jesus is loved by the Father, Father is well pleased with him, then I can't afford just to walk on by Jesus without carefully listening to what he says and to what he does. Fourth puzzle piece. Notice in verse 12, in the first part of verse 13, we've got the opposition by Satan. So after this baptism and after this proclamation and anointing, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, did you notice that going out into the wilderness was no mistake? It was no accident? Literally, the Spirit, we're told, sent him there, directed him to go there. Some of your translations say, drove him out there. Okay, so how does being tempted by Satan prove anything about the identity of Jesus? Well, I, I ran into my, in my reading one time an observation by someone who said, you can tell the measure of a man by the strength of his enemies. Hmm. So we're told that The temptation and this opposition is coming from Satan. That word Satan literally means adversary. So Mark is trying to get into our heads a line of thinking and questioning to to go on about about Jesus. If, if, If Satan is Jesus' adversary, then what does that tell us about Jesus' identity? In other words, Mark is trying to get us to think things like, if Satan is on the bad side, then Jesus is on the... Wow, good thought, I guess. If, if, if Satan is a representative of all that's hell-bound, then Jesus is a representative of all that's... See what, how he's trying to get us to think this through? 
So again, look at your puzzle pieces you've got so far. What do we, what do we have so far? Well, Jesus is linked to John the Baptist. He was anointed by the Spirit. He's affirmed by the Father. He's opposed by Satan. Here's a fifth puzzle piece to look at here in the text. His identity is also seen in the support by angels. Look at the last part of verse 13. So he's out there in the wilderness, and he's with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Wow, God did not leave him alone in this tempting, hard time. Angels came and provided help. They came and provided assistance. Because what's happening right here is that there is a battle with Satan that is literally a cosmic clash between two different kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of heaven battling the kingdom of evil. You've got light against darkness going on here. And who's part of the team? In this fight for Jesus, God's angels are there for him. Now, angels, what are they? They're created beings whose purpose is to worship and serve God. So if they're here to help Jesus, then what does that tell us about his identity? Now, in Mark's story, we don't have all the puzzle pieces yet. We've just been given five initial ones, five very valuable ones, and we can begin to build some clarity through his connection with John, through his, uh, the anointing of the Spirit, through the affirmation of the Father, through the opposition of Satan, and then through the assistance of angels. And all of that is true. All of that is historically accurate. All of that logically has a cohesiveness about it. And it might just begin to help us not just walk past Jesus without giving him serious consideration. But there's a whole nother level that these puzzle pieces help. There's a whole nother level that show how these events can touch our lives. Because you see, Jesus not only came to be identified by us. Let's look at this text one more time that we're looking at. For Jesus also came to identify with us. In fact, here is where an incredible sense of wonder invades the story. Because I can hold those five puzzle pieces in my hand and go, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. And it doesn't touch you down here. But there's a whole other level going on here. Because Mark wants us to know that the God of heaven is on our side. He wants us to know that His intentions, God's intentions for us are kind and they are loving that we are not under God's curse but we are under his blessing that he understands the struggles that we face on a daily basis that's why in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 God declares this about himself he says for thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is for us. I remember quite a number of years ago now when I was in seventh grade, um, I had a paper route. Now, that's not something that is done any day now, I guess. Well, not only because people aren't reading newspapers anymore, but they're not allowing junior hires. 
to run around town throwing papers up on people's porches like they used to. And living in Colorado Springs, it's fine to have a paper route until January. Um, I came home from school and it had been snowing all day and there was about four to six inches of snow on the ground. I knew I was not going to be able to do my paper route with my bicycle. It wasn't that many papers, really. Maybe 18 to 20 homes. But boy, it was many, many miles long. My dad looked at me and said, well your job. You've got to deliver the papers. What are you going to do? Seventh grader, about the only choice I could think of was to pull out my sled, pile them into a big plastic bag, and walk the route. I did not want to go. Dad, can you help me? Nope, this is your job, son. Dad, please, no, go. Out the door I went. About a half hour, 40 minutes into this, I was wet, I was cold, I was crying, I was miserable. You know, seventh grader. My dad waited until I was about 45 minutes out and then came with the car. Piled up my sled, the rest of the papers, and we did it together. I was not alone. I can still remember that, even today. I was not alone. Some of you this morning need to have the encouragement out of the scriptures here. You need to realize you're not alone. It may look like it. It may feel like it. But you are not alone. Alone In those five puzzle pieces that Mark gives us, he wants us to see in these two events how Jesus identifies with us in two very critical ways. What are they? Number one, that Jesus stands with me as I face my fatal vulnerability. See, some of you probably asked, and you should have asked, when we were looking at the baptism of Jesus here just a moment ago, Why didn't Jesus get baptized by John? I mean, if he's God's anointed, he's the one that's supposed to bring us salvation, and he doesn't need to repent. I mean, why does he need to get his life ready? He's the Son of God, so why did he do that? That's a good question. You need to ask those kinds of questions. So think it through. Who would have been there when John baptized Jesus? Well, look at verse 5. There was a crowd of people that would have been there. Who was that crowd of people? Well, they had heard John's call to repent. They were willing to face the sin that was in their lives. This crowd had come wanting to prepare themselves for the Lord's arrival by confessing, confessing that which was wrong on their inside. They're admitting their need. Those are the people that are there when Jesus comes to be baptized. So here's the surprisingly good news. Something that Mark is going to consistently bring up as we continue to work our way through his writing. Jesus wants to be around people like that, and he still does. Folks, that's good news. Jesus loves the company of the broken. Those who identify themselves and understand that their lives are completely messed up on the inside, that they openly admit that something is desperately wrong and they can't fix it. 
Jesus came to be baptized in an act of solidarity with those that are facing their fatal vulnerability. And folks, I use those words carefully. It's fatal because it's killing us on the inside. It's that sin that's inside of us that's out of control. Which means Jesus stands with us in our sin. Some of you need to hear that this morning and let that sink in deep. That Jesus is not embarrassed about your sin. Jesus does not look at you and say, how could you? And then run for cover. That's not our Savior's heart. Rather, he wants to know that he can be the answer for that brokenness that's down deep there. He'll come and stand with us and face with us our fatal vulnerability. Scriptures tell us about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could be made right with God through Christ. Or here's one more. Remember what John the Baptist said in chapter 1 verse 29 of John we looked at just a moment ago? He said, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for some of you here this morning, that is good news because you're overwhelmed with a sense of shame. You're burdened with this heavy load of guilt. You've probably given up hope that you can change on the inside. And Jesus came to stand with you in facing your fatal vulnerability, that which is broken on the inside. He simply asks, will you let him take care of it? He's the only one that can bring that sense of forgiveness and freedom that your heart is yearning for. See, that's, you see the wonder that begins to break in here at a whole other level with those puzzle pieces? He'll stand with us as we face our fatal vulnerability. He wants to be identified with us. But there's a second one that the passage brings to us, and that is Jesus also stands with me as I face relentless hostility. See, that's when we move from the baptism to the temptations in the wilderness. Those 40 days of being tempted by Satan are a reminder to all of us that my life doesn't really make sense unless I can appreciate the fact that I'm engaged every day in a spiritual battle. That Satan will do anything he can to bring me down. And we're warned about this and encouraged about this in the scriptures. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul writes and says, Be fearless in your struggle. Keep a firm grip on your faith and on yourself. After all, this is the fight we're in. Hmm. Or how about 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. So put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. Which means Satan's hostility towards us is relentless. Every morning I've got to remind myself that I'm walking out into a war, that I've got an adversary, and the temptations I face are not random things in my life, but rather part of a planned attack. I thought of this at the moment. I gave it the first hour. I'm going to give it to you. i got an assignment for you. I am convinced that Satan is a better student of you than you are of yourself. So this afternoon, I'd like you to do something. I'd like you to take a three-by-five card, get some time alone by yourself, 
And on one side of the three by five card, I want you to write down, what are my five biggest weaknesses? Now, don't look at me like that. I know you've got them. I've got them. I'm not going to tell you what they are, um, but I've got them. But, so write down, just, okay, number one, number two. You, know. you can prioritize them if you want or not, just put, 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 put down. What do you think are your five biggest weaknesses? Then turn it over, and on the other side, write down, if I was Satan, how would I take advantage of those vulnerabilities? Ooh. That'll give you something to pray about. And it'll probably open your eyes to how you're facing that vulnerable, that relentless hostility and sometimes not doing it well. Because you know, there are days, isn't it, when the battle feels like it's a combat zone and we're, and we're dodging incoming artillery rounds and then there are days when it seems a little more quiet but we feel like there's this subtle propaganda battle going on. Now some of you who know your Bibles well, you've made the observation that Mark doesn't give details of those 40 days of temptation like Matthew and Luke do, but his point is the same as those other two guys. What's the point? Jesus understands the battle of temptation we face. He understands the relentless hostility every day that we're facing. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18 explains it like this. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow. In fact, if you would, turn, turn to the letter uh, to Hebrews. Further back in the New Testament. Chapter 4. Let's, let's explore this for a second. He'll stand with me as I face relentless hostility. How? Well, again, chapter 2 said he, he's been tempted. He understands. Look at Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14. Let, let, let this describe a little bit more fully how Jesus comes alongside. Verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is it? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at verse 15. Did you see that little phrase? Tempted in every respect. Every respect. Jesus understands every way that we are tempted. Gentlemen, that means he understands the enticement to pornography where you're trying to fill that empty part in your soul. He understands the lure, the lure of substance abuse to try to dull the pain. He understands the ease of how we lie to avoid consequences. 
He understands our attraction to gossip and being critical of other people, of eating too much, of our arrogant anger, of our pride that refuses to ask forgiveness or to give forgiveness to other people. He understands those temptations because in every respect, he's faced it himself. And so now, as our faithful and compassionate sympathetic high priest, we can go to him to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And isn't it amazing that though we know these scriptures, why is it the last place we go for help and temptation is to the Lord? Why? When, after all, he was tempted in every way like us, he's able to help us. When we're tempted, he can empathize with our weaknesses when we try to say no, but we can't make it stick again. And yet he will help us at that very moment, that very point of, of, of need. That is great news. See, that, this is where wonder begins to invade these puzzle pieces. In his profession... This has been a couple years ago that, I, that I've got the, this, the, this information, so it's probably even more so now. Joshua Bell commands about $1,000 a minute when he performs. Wow. Makes some of us realize, boy, um, I need to be like Mrs. Marsal and play the violin more. <laughs> uh, but do you know that day in January when he played for 45 minutes? Those that walked by dropped in coins and some bills, but it totaled $32.17. They just were not aware of what they were hearing. They just didn't know who was there. So as we continue our road trip in Mark to experience Jesus, we're facing the very same scenario of that subway musician. In a dull setting, it was an experiment, though, wasn't it? As the Washington Post said, in context, perception, priorities. At an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? In the busyness of our lives, folks, we've got these five puzzle pieces now in our hand, and we'll add more. Will we pause long enough to consider what they're saying? Jesus came to be identified by us. Jesus came to identify with us. That's incredible beauty. Let it transcend. Please don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, we started last week, so we want to continue to pray. Lord, would you help each one of us see Jesus for who he really is? And that probably means some things need to get stripped back. But we can't do it. So will you blow away the fog that's obscuring him from our hearts? Would you strip away those inaccurate facades that have been built up that misrepresent him? 
But Father, with those five puzzle pieces in our hands, there is something for us to do more, and that is we need to come and ask you, would you help us to face our fatal vulnerability? And some of us this morning need to do that. But but rather than seeing you so far and distant away that you're standing next to us. And some of us need to come and pour out our heart to you because it's relentless hostility. Thank you that you can identify with us with that too. Lord, we want to see Jesus for who he really is. Because I think as we do, Lord, our hearts will then find everything we've ever really wanted. Because it's wrapped up in that person who wants to have a relationship. But Father, keep us aware. Keep us so aware that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there are a lot of people on it. But it's a small gate in a narrow way that leads to life and very few find it because so many walk on by. Father, would you capture our hearts? Would you help us look for that small gate, that narrow way, slow us down, give us eyes and ears to see and experience the real Jesus. And we pray that in your grace-filled name, our faithful, sympathetic high priest, It's the name of Jesus we pray this in. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.